Hey, would you look at that? We're back for episode two, and uh, I'm glad you guys could join me. We were just traveling for a little while. We were in Toronto and getting some work done there, so I didn't really create anything new for the show or for YouTube. And in fact, YouTube's lagging a little bit behind. I have, I think, three videos that are on the go. Hopefully one of them will be out soon. But until then, I can talk to you guys right here. That's uh, the nice thing about podcasts. And speaking of, I've got to recommend one or two shows right off the bat. First, I'll mention Broken Record, which is a show with Malcolm Gladwell and Rick Rubin, who are just two of the most important names in their respective industries. Malcolm Gladwell, massive bookseller, and Rick Rubin produced, you know, most good music the last few years. Um, They have come together to make a show called Broken Record, where they are talking to artists about details of, of production in the process. And the first episode's about Eminem and it is incredibly well done. Uh, I'm going to talk about it a little more later in the episode, so I shouldn't bother too much now. But the other great new show is called Omnibus and it is with John Roderick of Roderick on the Line, who I, I always want to recommend people listen to Roderick on the Line. It's one of my favorite shows. I've listened to it a lot over the years, but it's quite hard to get into. Like it's a hard show to recommend and Omnibus is a bit more straightforward. It's with Ken Jennings is the co-host who you are more likely to have heard of. He was the guy who won Jeopardy a lot. So they are working together to do basically a interesting facts show. They're collaborating with how stuff works. And so far it's been awesome Two perfect personalities covering interesting topics. I, re- I really strongly recommend it. I don't know if you're like me, though, you might have already oversubscribed. I'm always running behind on great shows that I don't have time to listen to. But for some reason, also still searching for new ones all the time. I I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm still in the process of writing the iPhone 10 review. Uh, this is a very long term thing. It's going to be about a month long recorded in a lot of different locations. And I just really want to take my time with it. Everybody else has their quick reviews out by now. And I want this to be something a bit more long term, more in depth, really getting to know the phone, getting to know the experience of using it, because there are just so many little details about it that are really hard to grasp until you've been using it for a long time. So I'm trying to really spend the time to figure out everything about it. And actually, by listening to this show, you're probably going to get more of my thoughts on the iPhone X than watching the YouTube review that this is all leading up to. But I, I wanted to bring a friend on to this episode to talk about some really specific details, because I know he has a way of looking at Apple devices that is even more detail oriented than me sometimes. So uh, we're going to first start by talking about the screen of the iPhone and it gets a little technical. It may not be totally easy to, to, to follow, but if you stick with it for a few minutes, we'll talk about the phone in more general terms right after that. So stick with us for just a little bit. This is how this show starts. So this is a new show. Did I even tell you what the show is yet? Not really. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm starting a new show and I'm kind of letting the development of it be part of the show because, uh, I was holding off a bit on, on creating it. I had the idea like two years ago, didn't do it because you know, it, when every detail isn't nailed down, it's easy to put it off. But what I, what I want it to be is whatever I'm interested in, not being constrained by a single topic and not being constrained by a schedule either. Um, cause there's just all the stuff I want to talk about and like a lot of different people I, I know, know more than I do about things that I'm into. So it's an excuse to kind of drag smart people like you into a microphone and, you know, chat about it for a while. Awesome. For everybody listening uh, right now, I'm speaking to Kelly Thompson, who is a VP at 500 PX. 
And we go way back to working together at iStock Photo in the olden days and at Getty Images. And uh, Kelly's a real veteran of the photo industry and a longtime Apple nerd along with me. Um, like you're the one that I confide in with my Apple woes and uh, excitement the most. So <laughs> we, uh, we do have similar thoughts many times there. I know that you are very interested in certain parts of the iPhone 10 that I've paid a bit less attention to. And I wanted to get a few detailed thoughts here about it because um, I'm still kind of developing my iPhone 10 YouTube review. And I was, I was starting to write my notes about the screen and realized you had already given me much better notes about the screen just in text messages. <laughs> so let's, let's maybe start there a bit. Just looking at the iPhone 10, this whole thing is designed around the screen, right? Like the, the fact that we gave up the fingerprint reader, the fact that we have face ID, the, every single detail about it is to accommodate um, what is obviously the, the new best iPhone screen. And now that you've actually had it in hand for a while, like what are your thoughts about using the screen? It's surprisingly good, I think is how I would describe it. Um, years ago, you and I, I think, spoke, you know, when some of the first OLED screens came out, they looked terrible, right? Mm -hmm. You know, someone would arrive at work and hand me their brand new Android phone and it would be white text on a black background and it would just look horrific. You know, I could see from a mile away the pink and green fringing around the text and I was mortified. And it's not really <laughs> what you want out of the future technology that we're all relying on to change the world. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, but that really was years ago. Although, I mean, on cheap Android phones, that's still what you get mm -hmm. often. But Samsung specifically has done a great job of really driving up the pixel densities of these phones and making the technology so much better that it can hide a magnitude of sins. Uh, what's interesting there is that the, how do you say this? So the resolution is actually lower on the iPhone X than the newest Samsung phones because not every pixel has three elements. You're kind of cheating if you just count the total number of pixels as the resolution, right? Because some pixels are basically sharing part of their color space with a neighboring pixel okay. is what it boils down to. So when, you know, when they say, oh, you know, this phone is, you know, 600 or 500 DPI, when it's in this kind of arrangement, that's not really true. If you actually add up the number of subpixels and sort of and divide through, it is a lower resolution. It's not, it's not a, a huge deal, mm. <laughs> but it, what's interesting here is that it looks like Apple is using, and this just might be the, the pictures, but it looks like Apple is using more of the area for subpixels, if that makes sense. I think you got to look at the photo to make any sense of this. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a hard one to describe. But what's the net result of this to you? Like, I'm sort of embarrassed at how much the difference of this hasn't jumped out at me. Like, I haven't been really sensitive to resolution changes since Retina. And even on computer screens, I actually, I don't have that impression that so many people do of that. I, I can't ever go back. Like I can't use a retina and then, and then go back to an old screen. Cause my iMac actually is not retina and my laptop is, and I don't find it frustrating. Whereas I'm, I am very sensitive to certain other display things. I mean, the, the black levels, for example, on the new phone, like I really appreciate them. 
But d- does this jump out at you? Like, can you instantly spot it when you pick up any iPhone? No. no. So for me, I mean, and I'm getting old enough. My eyes are starting to go now anyway. That's helpful. Um, in terms of peer resolution, I probably couldn't spot the difference between this and an iPhone 8. I mean, what is immediately clear is like the super black blacks, like you said, and then the saturation on the other end. Some of those really, really vivid colors mm-hmm. we're getting out of the P3 gamut. So so what's the best way to get? A re- I was trying to Google this and I didn't find a good result. How do I see the phone at its best? Like, what's the way that I demo the screen in the most interesting way? Um, a lot of people in their YouTube reviews were playing Wonder Woman, um, but how do I know if I'm even playing something that's too either an HDR spec or a P3 spec? Like I, I can't view the source information about the file. Yeah, that's been that's been a, a little frustrating. So Vimeo has has actually now supporting uh, HDR, and the funny thing is, it actually says. Now, I was trying to look it up to see how can I make sure this is actually playing in HDR. And there's yep. supposed to be a logo that's saying it's in HDR. And I've never been able to find that anywhere. Maybe it just never plays in HDR. <laughs> Maybe. Like, I've been looking at some of their HDR clips, and they certainly look fantastic. Uh, they have a bunch of time-lapse ones that work really well, taken in amazing, amazing colors. Mm. So th- one of the things I did for the article I wrote for 500px about some of this stuff there's actually a sample app that you can build supplied by Apple in their development kit that allows you to load an image and then swipe back and forth to show it in both sRGB and P3 or show the areas that are not able to be displayed in sRGB. Right, right. I've seen I've seen a demo like that and that that's the best way I've been able to visualize which colors are and aren't. Yeah, exactly. So I actually built that app and <laughs> I did, built the app, changed it around a bit and uh, imported some of the images from 500px. And that's how I actually took the screenshots to show what the difference between sRGB and P3 would look like. Right. So yeah, yeah there's another link to check in the show notes because then you can see some more demonstrations. This is a very visual podcast. <laughs> and, and also best seen on an iPhone 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and I've checked out the first one I looked at was actually Wonder Woman just to see. It's not, it wasn't absolutely clear to me that Apple's previews are in HDR. Yeah. yeah. I know that you, the, the, you have to download it in a certain resolution, in a minimum resolution before it kicks in or. Yeah. Like if you get the S- SD version is that HDR SD or do you need HD or do you need 4K? Like, <laughs> well, and you can't even download on the iPhone, right? You have right. to, you have to stream it. I think I, I don't watch a ton of movies on my iPhone. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, either. So the best way, and I've been meaning to do it. I just, you know, haven't is, is grab an old phone and load them both side by side and, and see what. Uh, yeah, exactly. I've done that for like the, the best demo you can give yourself or anyone is to, turn on an iPhone seven or any older iPhone and the iPhone 10 in the, in a dark room, fully black room with the screen set to a black background. And then it just jumps out at you. You can't, you can't believe how obvious it is that there's just light being projected from the older LCD screen. So that's the problem with all this, right? And it's what most people don't understand. Color is relative. So we've been staring 
for all these years at what we thought were black screens. Right. Right. Turns out. It turns out <laughs> if you actually put a real black screen next to it, you're like, oh, <laughs> I've been looking at medium yeah. gray and thinking it's black. But as soon as you see the two beside each other, like that's what we're good at in perceiving color and tone and stuff like that. It's it's the differences when they're close to each other. I mean, we're animals built to make sure we see other animals moving in the dark towards us. Right. right. So <laughs> that's what we're optimized. Well, and I think the good news about this, about not knowing if you're watching the right wonder woman or not, is that you can get most of the benefits from this looking at regular content because of that relativity. So if you just look at my normal photo that uh, I took on a five D let's say, and the blacks are at a true black in that. And I just saved it as a sRGB JPEG. It'll still, the, the blackness will still drop lower, right? The, the black points of the image will still be a darker black than on my old iPhone. Right. The contrast ratio increases regardless. And this actually kind of leads me to realize how little I really understand what HDR is doing because it's going to drop the black points down to being as dark as they can be. And it's also, I would think going to bring the white point up to as bright as it can be. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have a clear understanding of HDR on the production side. Uh, I wouldn't, I shouldn't say it's that clear, but I know what it means to have more dynamic range in an image, but there's, there's all these details about showing it that are just really hard to wrap my head around. Could you describe that clearly of like what the difference is? Well, I mean, part of the problem is that video has moved past photography in this area, right? So the TVs, they knew HDR was coming. So the specs are all there. It's right, ready to go. There's, you know, different HDR standards. But in photography, the same thing hasn't really happened. I guess maybe just because we're not replacing our monitors fast enough, like our phones are definitely going to get there much more quickly than anything else. You know, there, there's a few things. Um, HDRs on, on TV, kind of there's two things, right? So there's that pure white to pure dark when that was first set 20, 30, 40 years ago or mm -hmm. 25 years ago in sRGB, they set it basically the best we could produce then. So now we're stepping back and actually going this massive range that we have now is actually what we're aiming for. So right there, that change is mammoth, right? We're all agreeing that our displays can now display pitch black to super bright white whatever it is for 16 times what sRGB can actually do. So that's sort of the first thing. And then the second thing on video, um, HDR actually has to be at 10 bits or higher. Yes. Well, and so I assume some of this, like a, a way to imagine a bit of this is that the pure white point is still probably pure white. If we're looking at like a, well, I was going to say 255 grayscale, but that would imply 8 bit, right? Okay, so we're looking at, let's call 100% is white and zero is black. The, the zero and the 100 are still going to be the same on an older LCD screen or a new OLED screen. But the gradient, uh, say in, in that highlight area, say from 90 to 100, there's just more points of gradation. Is, is that what's going on? Well, there's that, but also HDR TVs must be able to display a certain maximum brightness. And I think that's far brighter than what we've been used to, mm -hmm. the white we've been used to before. Even think about it. Um, 
you know, if you're you're staring at the sun, bright white is still brighter than <laughs> um, than what we're used to on our displays. But so if I set like if I set a pixel and just define this one pixel, I'm like, okay, pixel, you are 100. percent Is that full bright pixel going to show up differently? I don't know how to describe it. This is the whole problem. Like there's not, there's not enough common language around it. There's a prerequisite to understand the jargon. Right. And I think this actually might've been part of the problem with something like the new pixel phones. So if you're actually, when you take a display, the whole purpose of calibration and color profiles is the display has to know how it presents color right so it needs it needs an understanding this is the maximum brightness i can give this is the blackest black i can give this is how colors across the entire spectrum show and the amazing thing is that apple is actually calibrating every one of these units as they come off the factory floor, right i've heard that crazy which seems appropriate as well like i, I mean n- now that i hear it's happening I'm like wow that's really impressive then i think about it for another moment i'm like i kind of expect that <laughs> why can't we always do that <laughs> like i want my i want every display to be accurate to a standard not just yeah to the batch of displays right, yeah. yeah so once the display knows how it can represent color then when an image is given to it with a color profile if it's sRGB, it'll do the best possible job of representing that. So the screens on the iPhone X are, you know, almost full P3 gamut. So that's much larger than the sRGB gamut. So if an sRGB image is displayed, it can display it with 100% of the sRGB color profile. Mm-hmm. And if it's a P3 image, it's dang close. It's whatever. I think it's someone said 98% of the, of the P3 or 99% of the P3. Whatever you give it, it should be able to produce the images as best as possible. And this is really some of the problem on the on the Android side, right? Until Oreo, no color management at all. So you have these weird settings that, you know, you can either say it's either vibrant or yes. whatever it is. And it's the problem is, is that those displays, of course, you know, they're the same amazing displays that are they're probably, you know, full P3 range. But what they're doing is because they don't have color management, you're actually saying to it with those manual choices. If I hand you this image, that's probably sRGB. Do you want me to display it how I think it should be displayed or on the vibrant setting? What it's doing is it's just stretching, you know, the colors all the way to the max the display can do. Right. Right. So that's why they look so gaudy and awful. And I also find it very, the naming very frustration when you switch those display modes because it doesn't give you any information by calling it vibrant. I mean, other than there is more saturation, but I kind of don't have a clear idea of what it's doing. And then I hold it next to my iPhone. And all I know is like, well, the iPhone seems more like what I expected, but, <laughs> but yeah. I don't, I don't have a lot more to go off of, which, which has been a really frustrating thing, especially about switching back and forth. Like the fact that I use both phones. Yeah. For the, I mean, for the next years <laughs> as a photographer, it makes sense to be shooting on an iPhone. Like like if you're using, if, if you're talking about using your, you, you know, using your phone, for shooting and having 
the actual right image appear in your screen. Yeah. You know, now that Oreo is out, it's out for a couple of the major Android phones. It's going to take a four-year lag time before, you know, most people are running it before the apps are updated so they can support color management and stuff like that. You know, we're running into this at, at 500px. We support color profiles and doing the best we can. But of course, on uh, Android, it's it's impossible to do. So the, you know, the best thing to do is just convert to sRGB and display it that way. And that's kind of what the phones assume. It's so upsetting that we are still at that point of needing to just convert to sRGB to make it easier because that's what we were doing in iStock days, which was a decade ago. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, that's still the best we got. Yeah, yeah. Although, I I mean, thinking back at that, it does make me super excited that we actually have these crazy wide gamut deep right. color displays. Well, I, I remember the first time you even <laughs> described the idea of uh, that Mac OS was going to be going to uh, resolution independence, which it's hard to remember that that was really crazy at one point. Like, that's possible? What do you mean independent? I thought things just were 72 DPI. Like, it just seemed... <laughs> Like that was just part of the digital world. That's it. It has to be seventy-two, and yeah. that increase and that change has been exciting. And you can kind of forget where we came from with it. Yeah, for sure. You know, and me being a print guy, and you know, we're working with everything at three hundred DPI or twelve hundred DPI, knowing how good things looked. Even Retina was an exciting time. That's for sure. Well, let's, let's shift gears a little bit to make sure that some of this is also understandable since I can barely understand what we're saying either. But, um, what, what are your like, general thoughts about using the phone? Like, how do you feel with face ID with the, the bigger interface changes and usability changes? Face ID is interesting, much more so than I thought it would be. You know, when I, th- I think even Apple had a hard time describing it. And then of course, there was the whole thing where, oh, it didn't quite work uh, during the demo. And yeah. that oh, <laughs> yeah, that sort of overshadowed how good it really is. I, I think uh, that's actually still haunting it. I had, when I kind of ran into people lately and say that I'm reviewing the phone, I had a few different people, just, you know, laymen that don't care about tech and don't have an iPhone 10 yet. They all, they all said, um, you know, I've heard the Face ID doesn't work. And one of the people referred to, like in that demo, I'm like, oh, wow, like that really, that really cut deep. That's going to be hard <laughs> for them to escape that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really too bad. And, but if you listen to the executives after that, they were like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Just use it. Right. Yeah. Um, which is totally true. But I think that is another issue in that it doesn't demo particularly well, like even with someone standing in a store, right? right. The the technology only works with a single face. Um, once you actually have it set up and are using it, and all of a sudden you're a few days in and like you whip open your bank app, you, like if, if you were using your fingerprint before, you go to touch it and it, it goes face ID done. Yeah. And I think it's way more important than we're even thinking about, right? Because, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's maybe not as fast as a fingerprint yet, but this is so much bigger. It's your phone knowing it's you that's holding it, Mm -hmm. right, at all times. That is a really big shift that I don't think people are quite getting yet. Well, and I can already say, even though the Face ID doesn't do that 
much yet. It doesn't have a lot of different functionality. I already have a feeling that the unlocking isn't the most significant thing. It is right now. It's the only flagship feature, but comparing it to the security functionality, like I actually find that more compelling. Like the way that it works with Apple Pay um, is more. Yeah. It's more of an obvious. That's the way it always should have been to me. Right. And like, do you, do you use keychain across yeah, your devices? Also, same thing for all the security stuff. It feels even like, like a bigger jump than it does for the marking the phone. Yeah. The first, I mean, the first time and I, w- I didn't even realize it did that. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> no, you know, that. you, yeah. you go to some random, um, <laughs> random Safari site where you have to log, you know, or a site on Safari and you have to log in and it just did it using your face. I was like, whoa, yeah. all of a sudden yeah. keychain is a lot more useful or, or in one password as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that is, um, that's important. And I mean, from what I, I I have not had any problems at all with the actual execution of it. Like it works incredibly well for me. There's only been a couple of times. Well, I have a really common, the most common one and everybody refers to this a bit, but I think we could talk about it in a little detail is how it doesn't work very well when you're laying in bed. Um, So there's one obvious reason if your face is smushed against a pillow or you have your hand (laughs) in front of your face, totally makes sense. I wouldn't expect it to, or if your eyes are half closed. But I've definitely discovered that even if I just lay down on the couch in the middle of the day and I'm not sleepy and I think I'm holding the phone in the same position as when I'm standing up, it still has much more trouble unlocking. Um, There's something about certain body positions or certain postures or or phone orientations. I'm not sure what it is, but it it definitely struggles more in any laying down situation. Um, Uh, I'm going to try to film some of this for my review, too, because I... I've, I've noticed it. I can replicate it. I know, I know that it happens. So. I clearly need a job where I get to lie down right. in the afternoon yeah. more. <laughs> yeah, this is all I do. Yeah, this is part of the review. Well, and, and the other one I noticed too is similar to when your um, finger is wet, like you tried unlocking it yeah. getting out of the shower. I, I tried unlocking it when like my face was too wet and it also couldn't do it. Something about the wetness was screwing with the infrared, I guess. Um, oh, that's funny. Yeah, so. yeah, no, I haven't had that. Um, yeah. I honestly, I had more issues with fingerprints than I ever did, than I have with, with face ID. And most of that was wet or, I mean, and we're both originally from Calgary, um, <laughs> dry. The, like the dryness as your fingers crack in the middle of the winter, yeah, yeah. like then, then it was kind of game over. Well, I, I wonder if how similar of an experience you're having now. Cause so I'm very positive about the face ID. I think it, it does work as well as advertised. It's great. But I do know, I know for sure that I enter my password more often than I did with the fingerprint reader. Just, there are just more cases when either like one common example is if it fails on the first ID for maybe a legitimate reason, like it wasn't pointed at me or was on the desk or whatever, then I bring it back up and it's on the password screen. It doesn't always try the face ID again and go in. Sometimes it'll just sit there and wait for my password. What I've done in those cases, I try to flick up from the bottom of the screen again. It usually works. Even if it doesn't say that it's unlocked. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It It's not always one thing though. It's just that I know on average, like I didn't used to have to, it, it, maybe it's even just that like I have an arm, my arms are full of stuff and I can't angle the phone quite right. Like I can only hold the phone sideways at this moment or the phone's upside down or the phone's on the desk or 
Um, there just are more moments, but I mean, I guess my bigger question was like, do you not, you don't feel like that's been the case? Yeah, not generally for me. I went and bought a couple of stands, charging stands that are angled. So they point at my face on, you know, my desk. Get yeah, those, at home. those seem like a pretty good idea. Yeah. The only issue I've ever really had is like you said in the mornings, but for me, I found that I was holding the phone too close to my face. You were holding right? so if I, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if, if I backed it up a bit, it immediately worked, so. Yeah, and that's another one. It, probably the most common situations are when I just kind of have my arms full. That's like a really, for some reason of things happening around me, I just can't, in a quick moment, uh, get the, the phone into position. Even right now, like I'm talking into a microphone and trying to look at the phone in a way that I can see my face and it, you know, it took two or three times to kind of get the mic out of the way enough. Right, interesting. And I don't really blame the technology for it, especially I think because I'm still so excited by how well it works. Like it's because it works surprisingly well, I'm extremely forgiving. <laughs> well, and if it's, if you remember how impressive the improvements were in touch ID oh, between yeah. the versions, um, I'm pretty excited. Oh, about if, it, if it's anything like that, uh, that... <laughs> I don't expect I, it's too much to hope for that big of a jump. That was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It all. Yeah. Cause it, the later versions of touch AD almost felt like they weren't working cause it happened, happened so quick. So in me getting ready to do this iPhone review, what do you feel like people aren't talking about enough? Like what, what do you, what jumps out at you that uh, isn't in all the other reviews you've seen? So I was really concerned about losing the home button and as you start to play with the new interface, you're like, oh, actually, the home button was probably a mistake. It always should have been swiping. Right. <laughs> so th that one's been, I, I guess maybe some some people have touched on that. But I was shocked at how much better it felt with those movements rather than the, you know, like the physical push down uh, on, on that physical target. It just makes so much more sense this way. And I think it's more than just that one swipe. It's that by using a swipe for the primary interaction with the phone, it's made all the other swiping make more sense. Like the kind of physical reality of, of apps floating around when you're multitasking and, um, just the physical mapping of the phone just makes more sense. Now it is that much more tactile and that since that one key interaction isn't external to the phone, it isn't outside of the interface. It is now part of the interface, like everything else. All yep. the other swipe interactions are sort of enhanced by it or, or made more logical. Yeah. Reemphasizes the, the swipe. No, that's exactly right. And <laughs> my old iPad that I, I still use every day, it is a nightmare to go back to. Like it feels really odd. Yeah. So I think this is, Definitely the right way forward. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do next year, you know, when they have to, like, there's all these rumors about what, you know, they're doing three new phones. Are they all going to have these gestures? Are they going to lose the the button across the product line? It'll be interesting to see, uh, see what they do, because I think this feels better. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. But one, one implementation detail I still can't fully get on board with is the uh, swiping the home indicator at the bottom to change apps is amazing. Um, like it works great. I use it all the time now, but that lack of, uh, object permanence when you go left to right and then you stay on an app for some indeterminate number of seconds. And then the previous app switches from being on the right to the left. 
I cannot predict when that's going to happen. (laughs) And, you know, I, I just think it needs a different solution. Like you need to start, you at least need to learn to expect when it will be where. Yeah. Um, I can see, like, I, I, I actually had to go and read what they were trying to do yeah, right. in order to figure out kind of what, what was going on. Cause I was doing the same yeah, thing. What like, am I supposed to be doing here? Yeah. What am I? Um, and I don't, so I think it probably worked better on paper than it, than it works better in its implementation. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they, they rethink that a little bit. Cause you're right. Like it still surprises me sometimes when I'm like, Oh, it's, it's the, a left swipe and no, no, like no, it's maybe not. it's even nothing changes until you've interacted with an app. Like if you just switch, everything stays where it was until you uh, activate anything within the app. If a user is surprised by what's happening, it's <laughs> yeah. probably not the right thing. Yeah. And I constantly am. So yeah. A few other things too, like it's going to be the, the, the OLED screens, back to those, they do have, they do fade over time. So it's going to be interesting to see how Apple's dealt with that. You know, the, the Galaxy phones are are looking pretty good. So hopefully the same here. And, you know, Apple keeps saying they've done a bunch of things to mitigate burn-in. The software optimization and, and whatever. Yeah. Did, did you hear, uh, I think it was on ATP, Marco was talking about that there's a warning if you switch the amount of time that your display stays on for that it warns you that you could cause permanent damage to the display. Did you, did you look into that? Oh, well, yeah, I, I heard them say that. I mean, it's just part of the technology, you know, of an OLED screen. Apple hasn't really come out and said what they're doing to mitigate it. Like I know, you know, Samsung actually says, Oh, we're shifting the interface like a few pixels around the screen mm-hmm. over over time just to make sure it's not exactly the same pixels lit up every time. But I don't know if Apple's doing something similar. They they certainly haven't talked about it yet. But do you know what? It's actually hitting fairly close to home because we have a, we have a one and a half year old daughter and we've always used our phones for the internal security camera, the nanny cam to watch her. And we've always left the phones on all night just on that display. And, um, right. Yeah. So that I'm not doing on this phone. I went out and got a, uh, used, uh, iPod touch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to do that instead, just in case, uh, I don't really want the, the logo of the, uh, nanny cam burnt oh, sure. into the, the bottom of my phone. And, and what about the, uh, control center top right swipe? Do you think that's going to stick around? Uh, I mean, it frustrates me a lot, but I, do you think they can do better? You know, I think they can. I have ginormous fingers, uh, hands. Right. So yeah, so it's not a problem for him. It's not a huge problem, but I still find myself thinking it's somewhere else. So I have a, a mental stutter as I go to to display it. Yeah, uh, there's somewhere better they can find. Um, well, and I still, it. I think a tough reality of it too is I just use it less. Uh, yeah, I totally do for sure. And I don't sure. want like, there, there's sometimes like, oh, you train yourself out of an old habit and maybe it wasn't entirely a good habit for you. And now there's a better way. It's like, no, I just skip doing things that I would like to do because I'm like, eh, I can't quite reach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, or, or same with um, the most common one is, is music stuff. So I'll more often launch the app that's playing it if I want to pause or skip ahead or whatever. And, and also because I've found the touch targets around that little music widget inside of Control Center, I'll miss touch more often. I, th- I think because they're closer together than previously, like the 
uh, skip ahead and skip back were further away from the play button. So now I'll more often hit what I didn't intend. But. All right. I've had some weird, well, speaking of music, I'm, I hardly listen to music anymore because I'm in overcast. Mm, yeah. Well, all I, the time. I didn't mean to imply that it was listening to music because it's only <laughs> overcast, but it drives me crazy still. And I don't know why we can't fix this. You know, if I hit play, I want my damn podcast to start playing again, not some random oh, song. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's really frustrating. I think they have to think hard about. Well, it's like there needs works. to be levels of of memory in what played most recently. Again, you know, Marco talked about this of why yeah, Overcast yeah. can't do it specifically, but that there's sort of the stack within the OS. But it seems like okay, so if I played a video in Twitter and that was the most recent video instead of my podcasts, but I forgot about that Twitter thing, go back to the next level. What did I play before that video on my Twitter? Is it not, and is it available? Okay, if not, go back, maybe maybe there's three whole steps it can go back or something like that. But the fact that it just defaults to music so often and alphabetical music, <laughs> worst <Yeah>. of all. <laughs> it is annoying. Yeah. It is annoying. But um, speaking of Overcast, what are you subscribing to lately? Do you have any new podcasts? Oh, I do. Because I do. That's part of what <laughs> <laughs> I do not because I'm so, f- with a child now, I'm so far behind. I'm just, I'm drowning. Oh, yeah. yeah. Are, are, do you mm-hmm. kind of give up on listening to everything? Like what shows do you actually finish every single one of now? Well, I mean, probably most of the ones you do, all the tech ones, um, the ones I've been really that aren't tech, like um, Radio Labs, more perfect has mm-hmm. been really, really interesting. Uh, the actually the New York Times Daily one is, I think, one of the most enlightening things I listen to. I usually listen to it on my cycle into the office every day. Oh, is, and, it, is it short? Uh, it's it's twenty minutes, okay, but it's that's you know it's yeah twenty minutes at two uh, x you can yeah <laughs> that was right and I mean I listen to all with, with speed boost <laughs> yeah I do I listen to yeah one one just under two I guess I'm I'm up to now but I I mean I listen to all the normal ones right like yeah. accidental tech podcast and above Avalon Neil Seibert's a smart dude oh I, I didn't listen to above Avalon but I did take you yeah. up on your last time we talked to your recommendation of Exponent. I mean, I was familiar with Ben Thompson before, but once I really started listening to his whole worldview, <laughs> I mean, I really got into it. It's it's a much more thoughtful perspective on tech than pretty much anywhere else. Uh, so honestly, after listening to those guys really think about things, sometimes listening to the other podcasts can be a little painful because it can be really superficial compared yeah. to something like that. Yeah, that totally. Have. There can be like three levels of superficiality of um, there's kind of the news of like, here's the specs, here's what it is, and do I like it or not? And then I think I generally try to go for like one level past that where I assume knowledge of the specs already and it's more talking about how does it affect your life and, you know, what are some implications that you haven't thought about, but they are really another level deeper on all of this. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I strongly recommend it for anybody that already has too many tech podcast subscriptions and it can take you further into the matrix. Yeah. I mean, definitely those guys, I, I was always interested in, you know, Clay Christensen and the dis- in disruption theory because ISOC photo was sort of a classic example of that. So listening to people who fundamentally understand that at a much, much higher level than I did even was, was fascinating to listen to. So 
And then um, like the last two days, uh, t- today, the a new one came out called Broken Record, um, unrelated to anything tech, but um, Malcolm Gladwell and Rick Rubin, you know, one of the biggest writers of the last 20 years and the biggest music producers are doing a podcast together where they're doing behind the scenes interviews of, I guess, new music that's coming out. The one that came out so far was about Eminem, but it was, it was just sort of, it's crazy for podcasting to see people of the, with that name recognition release what seem to be independent podcasts and same with Malcolm Gladwell's other podcast. Uh, It's title sponsor is Chanel, which nobody gets sponsored by Chanel. That's crazy. (laughs) You know, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. I giggle every time I hear that. So, So just kind of that, that seeing those really large mainstream people starting to get into the medium is, is really exciting to me. I mean, Every year feels like we're closer to a golden age of podcasting. Yeah, I mean, I can't can't even imagine now not. I just always feel so informed by you know instead of listening to music like I, like I used to, you know, every minute of every day, I'm having someone say something smart into my ears. Yeah, well, it becomes the, <laughs> that is part of the addiction of it, though. Compared to music, is I do like I do make sure to still listen to music sometimes because it gives me a different feeling, and sometimes it. it, it triggers inspiration. Like it allows more of my own thoughts to free themselves a bit instead of just allowing other people's to come in. But I can still feel the trade-off sometimes of like, well, you know, if I'm, if I spend an hour not ingesting all this new info, I'm losing out on something. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of podcasts, are, are you using forecast? Oh yeah. Well, so I haven't yet. This will probably be the first episode I use it on. Um, because so right now, actually, I don't know if I want to talk about how it's being hosted in case I change, but my metadata stuff was sort of being taken care of. And, um, so I, I'm definitely going to try it for this though, cause I hear the encoding's amazing. So and it's, I've, I've actually really, you know, appreciated, uh, accidental tech podcast with the chapter markers. Like you really notice when there's images and everything they talk about is in there. It's just, it's, it's nice. Right. Yeah. You know, I can be stopped at a traffic, like on my bike and they're, they're talking about something I can swipe through and look, and look at the image. It's kind of totally. Kinda yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or when he mentioned that they had embedded a video, like secretly embedded a video in one of the image arts and nobody noticed. Yeah. yeah. I should try that too. Although I probably won't. <laughs> but all this to say that probably our main recommendation right now is ATP. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, have they talked about this? Because every time it happens, it's so weird. If I accidentally listen to another podcast again, rem- I can remember exactly where I was the first time I listened to it. Do you mean, is that a feature of Overcast? Like triggering no, no, your memories? No, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm saying like, does that happen to you? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Especially for audiobooks for me. Cause yeah, because they'll have, um, it's a longer period, right? So like I'll have a series of kind of like quick flashes of like everywhere I went during the listen of that audiobook, Right. And podcasts, it's, sometimes it's a challenge because I listen to so many. I'm like, how much of this gets absorbed? How much of it <laughs> funnels in and out? Because I also listen to like one show is uh, No Such Thing as a Fish, which is a trivia show. And when I try to tell people about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's this hilarious, great show full of facts. Like, um, and I can't think of any facts from the show. I've listened to 50 episodes of, you know, so some, some things stick more than others. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you got anything else? 
No, um, I just remember the other, if, if you're not listening to Hardcore History by Dan Carlin, that's sort of my long format one. He is unbelievable. I don't know anyone who can talk for like 14 hours on World War II. He's just, he's, he's amazing. So make sure you, uh, it's, it's amazing that it's free. Yeah, no, I, I've, I listened to them all too. And I've gone back and bought one or two of the old ones. And yeah, it's just like, it would it would be really premium as a paid audiobook experience, and it's a free podcast. And yeah, th- those I I do end up remembering better. It gives me a much better understanding of topics that I otherwise most of them I didn't pay much attention to in the first place. So right, right, awesome. Well, thanks again for joining me, Kelly. Excellent. Thanks for having me.